This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Jeremy from CraftandMason.com told us how he turned his hobby into a fast-growing business. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that used Facebook ads to promote a Kickstarter campaign that raised $800,000. In this episode, you'll learn what is rapid prototyping and how to use it to design your products, how to make sure you're only focused on solving your customer's main problem, and when do you know when your prototype is ready for the market. Today, I'm joined by Yuan Ding from LumosHelmet.co. That's L-U-M-O-S-H-E-L-M-E-T.co. Lumos is the next generation bicycle helmet with integrated brake and turn signal lights for safer cycling and was started in 2014 and based out of Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Yuan. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. So tell us a little bit more about this uh, helmet. How does it work? Yeah, so it's, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, uh, that's that's uh, exactly what it is. It's uh, well, We're sort of calling it like a next-generation bike helmet. It's, uh, we designed it ourselves. It's a helmet that's, that looks like a regular bike helmet by day when you, when you just look at it. But uh, when you turn it on at night, you, know, you find if you've got your lights integrated into the helmet with you, it, you've got bright white lights in the front of the helmet, bright red lights in the back of the helmet. Uh, it comes with a remote that goes on your handlebars of your bike. And when you press those buttons, it activates left and right turn signals. And when you slow down, it activates a, a brake light. Yeah, very cool. So how did you come up with this, this idea for, for a helmet like this? I, um, I really fell into it in a strange happenstance way, to be honest. I'm not sure if I can explain it really, really well, but uh, me and my co-founder, we were both cyclists uh, in Boston just uh, as commuters, and you know we really enjoyed it, but Boston isn't uh, necessarily the most friendly place in the world for, uh, for, for cyclists. Um, and, and so you know we, we felt pretty vulnerable on, on the road a little bit, and we've always felt frustrated as well um, with with just the idea of, of helmets. Like we absolutely believe that that there's necessary pieces of gear, but it's kind of frustrating that you know other than protecting you in a crash, it doesn't really do very much for you otherwise. Um, and for us, like we we constantly just found ourselves just losing our lights, forgetting our lights, not charging our lights. You know, we'll dump it into our bag and we'll forget where it is and. Or it'll crack, uh, and just there were just so we were, spe- we were spending so much money on lights um, and just losing them so quickly. Uh, it was just a really really frustrating experience, um, and so that's sort of where the idea came from. That we could like, why can't a helmet do more for us? And you know if we could combine the two, you know I, I forget my lights all the time, but I, I rarely forget my helmet, and so if I had my lights on my helmet, I'll be you know more enthusiastic about wearing a helmet in the first place. Uh, I would always have a light uh, with me. Uh, it just seemed like a very natural idea. And so we were really just sort of scratching out our, our own itch, I would say. Um, and we spent a couple of weekends just hacking together a prototype, uh, really just for ourselves. It, we, there, was not, there was no, there was no like, uh, agenda to, to turn this into anything necessarily. We were just looking to make a helmet for ourselves. And so we tore apart an old helmet and, and started gluing LEDs onto it. 
uh, put Arduino PCBs on, on on the outside and started riding around with it. Um, and then we started getting comments all the time. People kept stopping us and asking, "Hey, cool helmet! You know, what is that? Where do you like? Where do you get one?" Um, and we got so many questions that we started thinking, you know, maybe there's there's an opportunity here. And I guess that's that's where it all started. Yeah, one thing you mentioned, uh, I think, in the pre-interview questions was about how you use a lot of rapid prototyping. Tell us a little bit more about this. Like, what is rapid prototyping? How did you use it to come up or design your initial product? Yeah, I guess our our approach um, maybe was a little bit haphazard, but I think there was a bit of a method to the madness. Um, we try. Uh, we're engineers by background, and um, I think our our mo is to build more and think less, or just keep tinkering. And so we didn't do. We didn't necessarily do a lot of like customer development or market research before, like. Uh, we had the idea, and we literally just spent one weekend um, building the first prototype. We started working on, I recall this quite clearly, we started working on this on a Friday night, um, and by our Sunday afternoon, we had our first uh, working prototype. It was crude, and it was really ugly, but but it worked. <laughs> uh, it didn't work very well, but but it got the idea across, uh, and it was enough for us to, to show ourselves and to show other people what, what the idea was. Um, and, and from there, we could immediately see um, that, that there was something there. And, and the, way, the way I knew was, um, I remember we took this really ugly-looking prototype to a bike shop, and we showed him the features like, hey, you wanna, can you take you know, 30 seconds of your time? I want to show you this prototype that we're building. It's like, look, it's a helmet. It's got lights, so we turn the lights on. Um, and you could sort of see his eyes. I, I could see his eyes light up. And um, and then we showed him the turn signal feature and and the brake light feature, and he started getting more. He's just you could see the excitement in, in his eyes uh, about how surprising and and yet intuitive and and useful features like these could be. Um, and when I saw that excitement, uh, I, I was thinking to myself that I could sell that. So <laughs> that, that's how it started. Yeah, and the idea behind rapid prototyping is just to get something out there as quickly as possible so that you can actually start getting feedback, just like how you did with by going to these bike shops. So did you place a, a deadline on the prototyping? Because this is, I think, an issue that a lot of entrepreneurs get into that are creating their own products, which is that they spend mm. so much time trying to get it perfect before anybody's eyeballs gets on it. Like, Did you ever have that fear of you know waiting until it got perfect? I see. And I realized I didn't necessarily fully answer your first question about how the rapid prototyping works. So to give you just very simple details, it was taking a friend of us, a friend of ours donated her helmet that she wasn't using. We tore it apart. We used a Dremel. Uh, we used uh, LED, uh, RGB LED strips you can get from SparkFun um, and Arduinos. Um, uh, to build to build the first uh, the first prototype and to get the turn signal and brake light features working as that first prototype. Um, uh, right now, today we use accelerometers and, and RF chips. But back then, the simp- the quickest way to do it was to connect it to the phone and have um, and have a program and have an app on the phone, um, which you can. Down- I forget which one we use now, but there are many of these uh, available online that you can get from SparkFun um, and just. Uh, use the phone to control the, the lights as if it was working. So I I would uh, pretend that the helmet's slowing down, and sh- and then the brake light would turn on by by someone else controlling the helmet through the phone, and and that's enough to get the effect. Uh, it's, it's just a show, just to you know, a proof of concept. 
Um, and you're asking about deadlines. So for deadlines, we didn't put any de- de- deadlines to it because this was uh, very much a project that was on the side. Like I said, we didn't necessarily have an agenda to, to make this into, into something. It was really just two guys building something that we thought was cool um, to solve a problem that we were facing. And we weren't sure if other people were facing the same problem or if they would like the solution that we developed for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, was, it really was just a side gig. And it was a side gig for... Uh, probably a year um, where we kept building more prototypes. So it ebbed and flowed. Um, like I think the, there were months that we worked really uh, many, many hours on it, but there were months too that it just kind of fell to the side for a little bit before it picked it up again. Um, so it went through a full year of, of just side exploration. Mm-hmm. And so did you have any, either of you have any experience in entrepreneurship before? I know you say you engineering backgrounds. Did you have experience creating other products and trying to sell, trying to sell other products previously? I, I did. Um, I worked at another startup before, uh, before this. I was an early employee at that one. And that was a, um, it was a medical device startup making um, uh, uh, low-cost technologies for use in the developing world. Um, and so that was my first foray into, into building hardware. Um, and if you know anything about medical devices, it's like, it's, it was, I, I learned a lot. It was insanely hard. Um, uh, but I, I built my first product there and, and launched it into the market. And there was, there were a lot of challenges. Uh, I think we made a lot of mistakes and I, I learned a lot from, from that experience. Like we did a lot of good things right as well, but uh, there were a lot of things that I learned on how to on things that I would do and not do next time. Rapid prototyping um, being being one being one of them, uh, and so and so yeah, that was not exactly my first time. Mm-hmm. And just uh, maybe to make it a little bit clearer about rapid prototyping, like what is the opposite of it? Like what is the opposite of rapid prototyping? Is it just mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, you can explain? I, I don't want to get too much into jargon, but uh, if people are familiar with it. I guess one way is to think of it as that there's like a waterfall way of, of doing product development where you go through, where you set a lot of requirements up front and then you go through gates of approval uh, before you can move the project through. Um, and then there's the sort of like agile developments where the idea is you should just make the really, the, the dirt simplest thing you can to, to meet the most basic requirement first and then slowly add on and, and build onto it so that uh, in theory, at any, at generally any point in the middle of the project, you will always have something that that is uh, sort of like a product that is less launchable. In in theory, so that that, that fits better for for software and less and less for hardware. Um, but the principle uh, of it is keep it as simple as as possible. And that is early on in the project when you set certain requirements, um, they they have very uh, profound cascading effects. Um, and so you really want to keep it as simple as possible. So, so for example, for our product, it's, it seems very simple uh, and very straightforward, and that is absolutely by design. Um, that we, we received a lot of questions, um, you know, when we were talking to potential investors and, and stuff like that. They kept pushing us like, hey, you know, it's a cool idea, and clearly you've got a lot of traction, but, you know, uh, this whole Internet of Things space, wearables, you, you guys don't really seem to be um, taking advantage of, of, all, of all, all of these trends um, to which our reply was, well, you know, our approach to doing is that we, we see those opportunities and we do intend to, you know, go into that space in the future. But the way we approach things is we're going to keep the product as simple as possible. Um, A, because marketing wise, you should really just be solving 
the customer's main problem and, and, and nothing more, nothing less. Um, because otherwise it's just, you know, you're going to dilute your message and like, what's your product really about and, and, and all of these things. So I think focus, focus is really key. Um, and, and simple, simple is best. Uh, and second of all, um, uh, making any product that that's new is, is so, it's just really, really hard and you want to get out of your own way. Um, as engineers, I've experienced this for myself. We we really love to stuff so many things in and and, and sort of over-engineer the products. Um, it's shooting ourselves in the foot. So it took a lot of effort to actually force ourselves to focus on just these few features for this product, um, so that we can establish a base and build on that in the future. Mm-hmm. And I like that you the what you said about just solving the customer's main problem. How do you make sure that you're not diluting your focus and maybe I guess expanding the scope too much and trying to tackle too many problems? Like, how do you do? You, are there checkpoints along the way? Are there questions you, you constantly ask yourself to make sure that you're only focused on one problem and that problem is the main problem? Mm, well. I don't know how other people do it, but the way the way we did it. So one of my main uh, learning lessons from my my first job was uh, in, in product development is you need you have, you have all your requirements, and it's really really important that you rank order and prioritize all of them. Um, so you you can't you can't say I want these ten features and all of them are must haves. Um, if you cannot rank order one two three four five to ten all all of them. Um, then I think you are not being disciplined enough about what's really important to you, um, because you're going to enter situations where it's just yeah you're you're in a rock rock in a hard place, and you have to cut something, uh, because you know your creativity and ingenuity is only going to take you so far. <clears throat> in uh, in product development, it's just it's all about trade offs really. So you have to accept compromises. Um, and unfortunately, unless you're, you know, a huge company with like, you know, millions of dollars of resources to throw at every single problem, um, for for a new for a new startup with very scarce resources, um, we can only afford to focus on the main problem and do that well. Which, which ironically, I think is is the strength. Uh, but if you try and do too much, then you're going to overburden yourself, and, you, and the whole thing is going to collapse under your own weight. So, I just prioritize everything. And we do the best we can to get all of it, but it's going to come to a place where some things cannot be done. And so your rank, your priorities will tell you clearly what things you, you can cut um, and what, what things to cut first and what things to cut last. Mm, I like that. So you mentioned that you had experience launching products because you have your, your work experience at a startup. What are your thoughts on working at a startup before starting a business yourself? Do you feel like you could have launched uh, your current business Without working at a startup uh, previously, I'm, I'm sure it's <clears throat> I'm sure it's um, different for everyone in you know their their personalities and their skills. For me personally, I don't think I could have started this without my experience before. Uh, or I mean, I could have, but I would have made so many mistakes that would have killed us. <laughs> and and I mean, I I could still be making many mistakes now that will that could kill me in the future. I I have no idea. But I think I've avoided some. Um, some some mistakes, um, you know, a, a big one being, for example, working with uh, really good factories with, with really good um, uh, established product lines that know what they're doing, are reputable, trustworthy. You know, basic things like that um, make a huge make a huge difference. Um, so so for me, no, the answer is no. I I I I'm really glad that I worked at a startup first. Um, 
and 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 learn a lot of things uh, learn a lot of things there yeah i think uh working at a startup especially in a product development role is like being a ceo in training you just get so much experience launching a product but the risk is not not so much on you it's on the company that you work for so you get a really nice training ground uh, you know if you can get a job at a startup especially if you are thinking about launching your first business i think you can learn a lot you can at least be able to see how quickly businesses can grow and what yeah. can potentially kill a business too yeah, for sure. And I'm in a strange place where I've actually I've I've only worked maybe three months in a big corporate typical corporate organization, um, and I think you learn a lot of things there as as well. But my my impression was a lot of things that you learn is is how to navigate a bureaucracy and how to um, mm-hmm. uh, how to work in the context of a large organization where there's there's politics and 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 there are many other things that you have to that you have to deal with. Uh, I actually have not built the skills to, to do any of those things, and I think it's a very so. It's, I'm I'm a small company person. I'm a startup person. I, I start things from zero and take it to, you know, the one to ten sort, sort of situation. And I think a big company person is, you require a totally different skill set, um, and, and you learn very different things. Totally, I agree. I think that uh, you can learn any. You can learn a lot of things that are going to be applicable to your current business, your future business by working a job. You know, I think a lot of times there's this startup culture that says, you know, quit your job immediately and just launch your own business. But mm. you know, if you can't do that, you know, don't feel like you're just wasting your time. There are definitely ways or def- definitely skills that you can develop by you know working for somebody else, and definitely. you are you know learning these things while getting paid for it too, which is you mm-hmm. know the best way to uh, to learn. Um, so you mentioned that one of the key things you learned in your previous job that you made sure to, I guess, to get right in uh, your own startup is to make sure you work with quality manufacturers. Tell us a little more. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what did you? What what, what was your experience? You know, in the past, that you know influences your decisions today in regards to manufacturers. Right. Well, I guess the the key principle to me is um, so I, I'm. Like I said, it's an engineering background and a bit of a product guy. Um, um, I, I think a lot about about how to build products, and I think in general, uh, if you're building something new, you really want to be as close to the process of building it, like actually building it. So, for example, if your if your products are software products, that's a little bit easier. Probably the founder is already a developer, and you're actually coding the thing yourself. That that's that's really really ideal. Um, for hardware product, this is a little bit harder unless you want a factory yourself, which most people probably don't. Um, and you really need to be on site, on premise for um, for as as long as long as possible. Just because, um, I mean, factories have so many things going on. You're probably almost definitely not the biggest project that they're working on. And you know, even even though the world is so small, like we're skyping right now from. You know, many miles away from each mm-hmm. other, uh, but there's nothing that beats face to face. A lot of business still has to be done face to face. You just have to have to be there. The psychology of of that of knowing that you're here makes me do the work a little bit better and and, and stuff like that. Um, so, I think the the learning lesson for me is that you know, of course, you have to choose the right partners. Uh, the way to choose the only way to know whether they're right or not is to is to try working with them for a while, and you have to be. On site, so we, we spent. I spent a lot of time going back and forth when I started in Boston. Um, like once, once I once we had a good idea of what the product should be, um, the next step was okay. How do we know how we can, you know, whether we can build this or not? And and that's uh, it's an engineering design 
uh, in a product design, but then it needs to be made by a manufacturer, um, especially for helmets, which are safety products. You have to um, meet quality requirements. You have to pass safety tests. Um, and we're not going to start the factory ourselves. So the the, the main challenge uh, at that point was was finding the right manufacturers. So I was flying between Hong Kong and China and Boston quite quite a bit, looking for the right manufacturer for, for some time. Um, and I think that was like a six month project uh, identifying that. Mm-hmm. So you're you're in Hong Kong right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Awesome. So what do you when you're on site? Like, what are you what do you do there? Like, what are if someone uh, wants to kind of follow in your footsteps and make sure that they are. Uh, you know, picking the right manufacturers, and when they've chosen one, they want to be on site to make sure everything's done right. Like, how do mm. you spend your days? Like, what are you doing to make sure that the you know the product is being created the way that you want? Right. So, uh, our story, I think we got a little bit lucky, uh, or maybe very lucky. Um, the approach that we did was. Uh, so I think in, in general, everything is, is they're all human relationships. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is if you approach a factory for the first time, you know, you don't know them and they don't know you. It's really hard to build trust. And, and there are all these stereotypes that people have about Chinese factories and, and stuff like that, um, which I think are, are kind of unfounded in, in my experience or, or at least exaggerated. Um, but if you, know, if you don't know each other from Adam, um, it's really hard to get started. Um, and it's really easy to get miscommunications um, or misunderstandings. And so how we got lucky was I was just networking around in, in Boston. Um, uh, there are a couple of engineering firms and, and, suppl- and um, suppliers that connect people. Oh, sorry, mar- not marketplaces, but connect- bridge builders and connectors uh, to find suppliers. And so I was asking around looking for uh, people who can connect me to a helmet manufacturer. And so... Um, somehow I got connected with this guy who has who had spent you know the last 30 40 years of his life building helmets and he, uh, he used to be you know really experienced materials expert he was an advisor to the CPSC as they helped as they developed their their safety standard for, for helmets so a uh, really key player in the, in the industry um, really busy guy. I had to meet him at the airport when I when I first met him. Uh, he happened to be flying through Boston. The only time he could fit me in was at the, at the airport. So I took my ugly prototype with me and, and I went to the to the airport, to Boston Dogen, um, and we sat down to have coffee. I showed him the prototype uh, with all the wires and and everything sort of sticking out. But he got the idea and he was enthralled by the concept and he was he thought it was really really cool and so he connected me to a help to a help manufacturer a really really good one that he had known for 20 years he he had brought them business for 20 years and so when i flew to hong kong to visit them um it was not like red carpet but it was very very warm Mm -hmm. and it was just that on the strength of his recommendation they they trust this guy uh, that stamp of that stamp of approval uh, meant meant a lot, and the fact that I knew that he was trustworthy and that he thought that they were a good factory, a, a lot of you know uncertainty was just taken off the table immediately with that with that connection. So I I didn't have to, you know, visit ten different factories and and sort of do my own analysis about who has a better skill or or, or whatever. This was this was sort of like the easiest way to to do it. First of all, I'm surprised they let you into the uh, the airport with uh, with a product the way you yeah. described it, all these wires <laughs> coming out of it. 
yeah, uh, to hide it. Back. <laughs> so yeah, like you, you're saying that there was some luck involved, but you're not not really right because you spent the time to kind of put yourself out there to find these opportunities to to network. Right. So maybe we can talk about that, like the maybe some tips you have on that. Like you mentioned that you're able to network with bridge builders, like people that can help you find suppliers. So were there like specific events that you were going to? Like how did you place yourself in? Uh, I guess the right situations to you know eventually meet the person that was going that that you know helped you out so much. Yeah, so uh, I mean, I'll definitely give shout outs to the Boston community. It's it's really not a bad place at all to, to start a startup. There's so many good people there, um, and the, I think one of the coolest things about the startup environment or ecosystem or culture right now is that people are so generous with their time, um, and they they just there is. At least it seems to me. I hope I'm not being naive about it, but people do have a genuine uh, desire to be to help people, and just out of pure altruism. Um, um, and so, let's see. There's Bolts in, in in Boston, which is sort of a hardware accelerator for uh, certain types of hardware startups, um, and they they did a monthly uh, hardware meetup, which I would attend quite a few times. Uh, there's another company called Dragon Innovation in in, in Boston. Uh, no, in where are they? I forget. Somerville, I think. Um, and they help uh, hardware startups um, find the right suppliers, do DFM of of their design, um, the the whole process to to get the products uh, ready to go. And they provided so much help and advice. Uh, I I would strongly recommend those guys. They're they're, they're good people. So are these uh, accelerators like incubators? Uh, are they like putting on the events, or did you actually have to be a part of their, I guess, program to to receive this kind of help? They they do both. Um, I mean, for the excel, the nice thing is about accelerators is they 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 know that well. One of the the things that they they do is they they're the natural hub, uh, a natural ecosystem. They bring all these, uh, you know. Uh, Young people and people interested in starting a company together with with, the, with these startups, uh, and it's just helpful for them, right? They they help foster that ecosystem. Maybe some people, some of these people, will turn into into companies. Maybe they'll go to them uh, to be part of their program in the future. But otherwise, even if not, it's a it's a fun, it's a really fun environment to just be amongst people, sharing ideas and talking about things that 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 they're doing. It's a, it's a really good community. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I want to go back a little bit to the to the prototyping that you did. So you mentioned that this process was, um, you know, over a, over a year of working on prototypes, creating, you know, improvements to the to the prototype and building a better and better version. So how, when do you know when it's in its? Uh, I guess it's never in its final form, but when do you know when it's in its final form to at least bring to the market? I think it's all in stages, right? To make the first most functional but ugly the. So I, the way I think about it is, I, I, I think the most important thing for me is to just get started. Um, and so, uh, how I sort of hack myself into, in, or force myself into doing it is I challenge myself. Okay, what's the ugliest way I, I could do this? So that that makes it as easy as possible. Mm. I don't feel, uh, I don't feel like I have to make something that's super beautiful to get started because that would just hinder me from getting started, which is counterproductive. So make the ugliest thing I can as as quickly as possible. Um, that first prototype was done in a in a weekend, uh, just to get the just to get the idea across. And then I think our second version of the prototype was a little bit prettier. Uh, that probably took one or one week to to build. Uh, and that got uh, the higher fidelity prototype. It was it was less ugly, um, still functional, got, got better feedback. Um, 
and then after that, it's like I think we got I think we had one more version that was that was similar in, in beauty, and then after that, we got samples from from the factory, uh, and this could be okay. So this is off like a, a basic design that we know is doable, and then it's getting closer to actually being being realizable. Um, I think the first stage was showing the prototype. I showed the prototype to probably over a hundred people to get the feedback and in, in person. So that's that's useful feedback, especially if you just observe what people do or how people look when they're seeing the product for the first time. That that's valuable information, um, but not necessarily wise to extrapolate because you're the one showing it to them. There's all kinds of biases. Mm-hmm. So the next thing we did was. Um, we we threw we threw up a, a landing page um, with decent photographs of, of the of the product and, and the idea, um, and I, I think it's a fairly well known tactic. But um, we just it's sort of a hack. Um, it's just a landing page showing the product, the lights, the brake, the turn signals, and at the bottom is the price, and then uh, a buy now button. When you and you click the buy now button, it just takes you to uh, hey, thanks for your interest. Uh, you know we're not available right now, but uh, leave your email or something like that. Uh, and then we just track the clicks of of the buy now button. So. So back back then, I thought that the buy now button. So the buy now button is a good proxy for interest in, in sales. Um, but but I I now realize there are many steps to go from buy now to actual like taking money from mm-hmm. the credit card. So the the best I think the best uh, gold standard would be to actually take money from people and then refund it immediately if you want to do a true 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 test about hey will people really pay money for this? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a good enough test uh, to 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 start and. Uh, a few people were, were a little annoyed annoyed by it. I remember uh, getting an email from someone who said, hey, it's super not cool what you did. I totally had my credit card out ready to input my details to buy your, your helmet. And I felt really, really disappointed You know, when I got this like thank you page uh, thing. Um, so, so, but I mean, that's part of no, no harm, no foul, right? I didn't take anyone's money. Um, and the fact that this guy would take the time to email me that email showed that wow, this guy really wanted the product, which is yeah, makes sense. So, so were you driving traffic to this initial landing page? Like, how did you, how were you able to bring, uh, I guess, visitors to it to determine if it actually or to to guys to validate it? Oh, it was uh, Facebook ads. <laughs> we mm. spent uh, the small, the small runs, um, like uh, I can't remember. It was like probably a hundred dollars or, or something to, to get some traffic in and then just measure uh, we use we use optimizely and so uh, optimizely allows you to take the same landing page and then you can change simple things like for example the price so we, we we had three different prices showing and so any visitor that comes will be randomized into one of the three and then we'll, we'll sort of see uh, the convergence across the three and that gives you a price elasticity curve um, a very very basic Non, not super scientific one, but nonetheless, it, it gives you some information. Oh wow, definitely sounds like a, a much more scientific approach than uh, than I had initially imagined. Uh, so I think I really like this idea that you had, or this, I guess. Um, uh, what you said earlier about you asking yourself, what is the <clears throat> sorry, what is the ugliest way I can do this? Because it removes a lot of the pressure from yeah. getting it perfect. You know, like you're saying, you kind of just want to get started. Um, and you know, speaking of uh, you know taking it a next step and actually getting people to pay you for the product to actually validate it, I want to talk about the Kickstarter campaign. So you had a goal. You had a goal of one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Ended up raising 
over $800,000 from over 6,000 backers. So it blew the goal out of the, out of the water. Like, were you ever, and I want, first thing I want to talk about is the goal, because this is a pretty high goal that you set. And, and mm. you know, a lot of, list, a lot of um, I guess, other entrepreneurs that, that I've spoken to on this podcast that have launched on Kickstarter, they will often say that they artificially or they, you know, purposely set their goal low just so that they could, you know, beat the goal and that kind of, you know, for optics or, I guess, visibility reasons it makes the uh the campaign much more attractive once the goal has been sure. met. so did you you know ever have this fear that maybe you wouldn't be able to meet the goal or what was the uh, well, maybe we'll start there like you know when you first started the kickstarter campaign was yeah. there like immediate reception to it or what was it like mm, well let's see i have strong feelings about this one this this is a this is a tough one i think i can i can speak transparently about this now that uh we're a year away from the campaign and we're we're actually about to ship helmets, so we're completing the project success more or less successfully. I think, um, uh, depending on the on the type of company, I, I don't know. For a hardware product uh, like ours, one hundred twenty five grand is not a lot. <laughs> it's 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 it's, re- it's really really not. Mm. Um, the break even uh, the amount of money that we needed was actually a lot more than that, and, and and we knew that. So in that sense, so before we went to Kickstarter. Um, we had a debate internally about what the goal should be, uh, as as you alluded. Many people artificially bring it down and 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 stuff like that. We we ne- we actually knew that we needed sort of like about three hundred and fifty uh, grand to mm-hmm. make it work. And I I was actually for a while I was pushing, I, I was pushing that hey if we need three fifty we should put three fifty, um, but a lot of. Uh, past Kickstarter successors said that if, if you do that, you're just not going to be successful. You're going to, you're going to, sh- you're shooting yourself in the foot and it will never, it will never get there. Um, you have to put something lower. And so the comp, so people were pushing for 50. And so we compromised at, at 125. Um, and so I was really concerned about, about many scenarios. So in the scenario that we make more than 350, then, you know, we're okay. We got the money that we need and we have confidence based on projections that we can, make the product and, and do it well, no problems. If we undershoot and get less than 125, that's also not a huge deal because the money is not taken out of people's accounts, no harm, no foul, maybe some backers will be disappointed, but you know, we live for another day, it's not, it's not a big deal. Um, the, the challenge was what if we raise between 125 and 350, let's mm-hmm. say we raise 250, you know, 250 is a lot of money, uh, but it's not enough for, we, we already know that it's not enough for us to make the product. And so if we take that money, then we're forced to, that money has to come from somewhere. We're forced to go and find money. And it's sort of like, if you need money, it's hard to find it. If you don't need mm-hmm. money, it's easier to find it. So you really want to be in a situation where of, of strength, uh, where you don't necessarily need any, where we don't necessarily need anyone. And then it helps more forthcoming, ironically. Um, and so the emergency situation then, so like, I mean, we didn't know if how much we we're going to raise, um, we uh, we had hopes for high numbers, but at the same time, we could you know two fifty sounded entirely plausible too. We we really didn't know, and so the emergency plan that we had, and and we saw so many other products out there that had raised you know decent amounts of money and still could not succeed in their products. You know, it's it's, it's happened so often now, and we really really didn't want to be one of those products. Um, and so our secret emergency plan, which I'm revealing <laughs> publicly now. Um, is if we raise between 125, which is to say higher than our goal, but below 350, which is our break-even necessary number, then we were going to shut the campaign down and return all the money. 
mm. that was that, that was the plan um and and well thankfully i think we raised over 350 i think by day 10 or or, or something like that so it ended up being fine um, but we had thought through the process of, of being very careful about, hey, how much money do we need uh, to be successful and what do we do if we don't reach that money? So we, we had a plan. There, were, there was not an ideal you know, uh, ideal plan. Shutting the campaign down and returning money is not something that's, that sounds super, super nice, but it sounds a lot better than taking people's money um, and being set up to fail from the, from the get-go. Mm, makes sense. So if that was the goal to, or not the goal, but the backup plan to return people's money, if you fell in somewhere between the, the goal and the actual amount of money you needed, uh, what would you, what would happen next? Like you would just start from, you know, ground zero again in terms of funding, like not having any capital, like what would be the next step after that? I think this is important to talk about because there are probably other Kickstarter um, campaign creators that are, are in the same situation where they need more money, but they don't want to set the goal so high because, like you're saying, uh, it's you know if you set it too high, then you're not going to end up getting any money. So, what, what was the plan if you were going to refund everybody? Uh, there's two plans. Uh, one, the first plan uh, was if we had enough money left in the bank for ourselves, then we would take the learn, see what went wrong in, in that project, take the, we'll, we'll almost definitely have learned a lot. So distill those learnings, uh, would have one more shot and do the campaign again, maybe one or two months down the, down the line, uh, maybe with a bigger mailing list or better photography or a better video or mm-hmm. whatever it was that, you know, we, we don't know what, what could have, could have done better. Um, and then do it one more time and, and hopefully that will work. Uh, and if it didn't work again, then the implication to me, uh, well, first of all, we'll be out of money anyway. And second of all, I think that would imply that it's a good idea, but the market is just not really feeling it. Um, and so we should stop the project and we should shut, shut the project down. Um, I think this, one of the hardest things, uh, you know, we, we focus so much on the big successes in entrepreneurship. And the truth is, of course, that it's so, so hard. It really is very, very challenging. As a, as a founder myself, I mean, this is our baby, right? This is my baby, and I, I can't. It's hard to let go of. Um, and if you're in a place where you can't let it go, but at the same time, the market, if the market doesn't really want what you're building, you're really this tough situation where you're just slogging against against the wind. Um, and and it's hard to say. Some sometimes there's so many stories of epic comebacks when things are looking the darkest, and then you come back and it's, it's awesome. Uh, and there are many thousands of stories that we don't see mm-hmm. where it, it just is a slow death and it's it's painful and it, it's excruciating. Um, so I thought Kickstarter was a really great way for me to um, distinguish, is there a larger potential market here um, uh, that I can, that I can, that I can uh, target? Uh, or maybe it's actually smaller than I was thinking. Maybe I was too optimistic, in, in which case, you know, it, it is a great idea, but the opportunity is probably not big enough to justify the sacrifice that I know it's going to take to make this product. Uh, and so it's better to know that early rather than late. Mm, yeah, I like that. I think that it's important not to be too bought into your product, bought into your idea, and be blinded by you know your own kind of passion for it, and and do kind of stick to the to the numbers, especially the ones that are yeah. being, you know that are coming from the, from the customers. Um, yeah. So, so you mentioned, I think you said you hit, you broke the uh, the break even that you needed three hundred fifty thousand dollars in ten days. You ran like did you run like a thirty day campaign? 
A 30-day campaign, yes. Mm-hmm. So how did you, uh, what was the promotion plan? Like, how did you, how were you able to raise that amount of money? Because, you know, this is probably $350,000 $350, is, you know, uh, would be amazing for pretty much any Kickstarter campaign. You obviously went um, over double that. Uh, so how did you promote this this Kickstarter campaign? We had a lot of things. We tried a lot of things. Um, Let's see, there was, first of all, there was, we had a large mailing list of people interested in the product before we launched. So that helped us get our, meet our goal in the first day. And then, and then the story is, oh, these guys have momentum. They hit their goal in the first day and the goal was actually really high. And so this is a real project now. And so we also had a PR plan. Um, So uh, we had coverage from and gadgets and I think TechCrunch wrote an article as well. I flew up to Boston, uh, sorry, I flew up to London to meet with magazines like Cycling Weekly um, uh, and, and stuff like that to show them the prototype. Uh, and so we got coverage there. Um, I think the cool thing too is that the product is re- uh, the idea is so intuitive and surprising uh, and, and useful so it is quite shareable so we got quite a lot of shares um, on, on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that um, but the biggest channel was uh, digital marketing we, we used a lot of Facebook ads and those were those were phenomenally effective actually um, so we had a budget for all these different things but Facebook ended up being the best traction channel by far so we totally just reallocated budget to Facebook um, we put ads on uh, uh, bike forums and like bike radar and, and, and stuff like that. That worked fine. Um, Twitter ads were pretty terrible. We shut those down quickly. Um, Facebook was just by far, by far the best for us. Okay, that's that's great. I, I definitely want to talk about this then. So the first, I want to talk about the the mailing list. You said there's a large mailing list. Was it mm-hmm. from running the Facebook ads to that landing page? Like, how were you how were you creating a, a, a mailing list even before you had a product? Yeah. So we tried so many things. So uh, for a few months, I was out there in in uh, the Boston area, going to bike events and physically just getting the first, I, I, I got like 900 emails by hand, uh, going person to person, showing them the product and getting their, their feedback and reaction. So that was really useful. Uh, and I would say it was worth doing, um, so that I had a very, very clear understanding of, of my customer. Um, but, on when we go, went on to Facebook, if you design your ad right and your landing page right and your targeting right, um, um, we got we got like ten thousand emails in two weeks. Uh, it didn't cost us that much. Uh, wow. uh, it cost us well. It cost us like a thousand dollars to get that, which is you know not not cheap. But um, I mean for that. that mail- yeah, for, for, for that many uh, emails, I think that's definitely worth it. So uh, can you explain again? So how did you, how did this work? Like, what was the funnel? Like, they, you showed them an ad. Like, what, what did the ad say? And like, when they clicked on it, where did they go? Um, at this point, I can't remember what the ad says anymore. But I think the ad probably said uh, a next generation bike helmet with lights, brick, and turn signals or something like that. Mostly is the picture. The picture shows the, the helmet with the lights and then that gets the click. So the click goes to the website, and the website explains the products with our video. Uh, with our video, maybe it was just pictures. I can't remember. Um, and the call to action was request the invite to la- uh, for launch. Um, and so they leave the email by leaving the email. Uh, they're asking for an, for an invite. It's it's, uh, it's an invitation sort of thing. 
Um, and then when they send, when they leave the email, we send them an automatic email that says, okay, the email said, uh, we email them and it says, hey, thanks for, for joining. Um, uh, by joining, you're like our VIP, and that means you get access to this really special deal. Uh, to get access to this really special deal, I need you to do uh, two things. The first is fill in this 30-second survey, and the second thing is to stay alert for our email, for our next email, which will tell you when exactly uh, we, we launch. And you have to listen to that because to get your special deal, you have to fill in the survey and it's first come, first serve. And so if you miss out, then sorry, right? So all this is true, uh, uh, we, oh, by the way, we were not misleading anyone uh, because Kickstarter doesn't allow you to... Um, create special promo codes for specific people. And so the only thing you can do is to create special pledges that's available to anyone. And, and then it's first come, first serve, they get, they get mm. snapped up. Um, which is helpful, uh, a helpful constraint for us because that's a great excuse for me to tell people that you got to come mm. the mm. minute the door opens because if you don't, then it's gone. And so, and so the cool, the, what that resulted in was, you know, uh, we were launching at, I think, 11.35 a.m. or something like that. And we could see on Google Analytics that there were people, there were like hundreds of people like refreshing the page, trying to get the link to, to go to our Kickstarter campaign. Um, and they're all clamoring to get in. And, and that's how you get momentum, right? The momentum, the momentum has to come from a buildup that exists before. Um, and then it starts to build on, on itself. Mm. No, I love that. I, I love that that uh, that you spend so much time, you know, before the actual launch of the Kickstarter campaign to build an audience that you could just direct to the Kickstarter campaign. So, do you remember mm. like how much it was funded within like the first like twenty four hours? Uh, it was uh, one hundred thirty two. One hundred thirty two, I believe. Oh, yeah. Wow! So you broke your goal within twenty four hours. Yes. Yes, we did. That's amazing. Cool. So now that the, the Kickstarter campaign is over, I guess you know, you're now in full production mode. What is mm-hmm. it? What is the? Um, I guess what's the marketing plan that exists today? Is it just to drive the? Like, where are you driving the traffic from Kickstarter to? Yeah. Now it's now it's different. I think uh, Facebook as a as a traction channel only works uh, in, only works really well in the early stages, and then it starts plateauing. Um, so I think we're already starting to see that. So we need new traction channels and. Our new attraction channel is going to be the product. The product itself. Um, we've had people. We've had uh, a group of beta testers using our product since January, and they've been using it almost every day in the last seven, eight months. Um, so, um, I think ultimately the, is, is the is the fundamentals, right? Uh, for our customers, are we solving their problem? Are we adding value to their lives? Do they like the product? Do they use the product? Um, and so we've had. You know, with our beta testers, we've got some really good answers. Uh, with that, they they tell they tell me that they do feel safer. The convenience of having lights is, is really great. People ask people on the streets ask them about the helmet all the time. Cars, you know, it's sort of anecdotal and maybe it's imaginary, but cars do seem to be giving them more space and giving them more right away more often, which is pretty cool. Um, and and ultimately. It's, I mean, we're building a safety product, right? We're, we're building lights into your helmet so that you're more visible, so that you're less likely to be, to be uh, hit by a car that, didn't, that maybe wouldn't have seen you otherwise. Um, and so people have exhibit, exhibited a real genuine uh, interest to promote that because they want their friends to be safe too, um, not just for themselves. And so we, if we do our job right, uh, I, I really do hope that... Um, 
And if we treat our customers well and build a good product, I'm, I'm hoping that our customers will reward us by mm-hmm. telling their friends about it and, and spreading it as an idea and we're hoping to build this brand into a bigger thing beyond just helmets um the next level is uh, we want to be a part of the uh, of the movements for better cycling safety and if lumos can be a brand that represents that i think that will be something really really cool and really interesting and a brand that people can can believe in and want to be a part of Mm, awesome. So, in, in, because you are creating this product that that is, I've never, I personally never seen it before, anything like this. Did you have to get a patent for? It? Like, what was your, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, you do. Uh, it's it's quite a painful process. Unfortunately, is uh, you have to bite the bullet and you have to you have to do it. It's not it's not necessarily very cheap either. And so that that's just part of the risks of of this journey. I remember distinctly that I had to buy a textbook. And, and just read wow. <laughs> about all the intricacies of, of, of what this involves. Um, I don't want to do that again, though. So <laughs> thankfully, at this stage, we've filed everything that we need to file in all our major markets and, and, all, and all of that stuff. But I won't lie, it's very, very painful. You could have a whole other podcast of a lawyer about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've definitely heard, uh, not necessarily horror stories, but it's a long process for a lot of entrepreneurs that are going down this route. Um, so it looks like uh, you guys are planning on on uh, shipping the first products this fall. So what is uh, what do you think the next year of your life is going to look like? What are, you, what are your plans? What other kind of goals do you have for, for the company? Oh, wow. Um, I, I, well, I have an idea. Um, It'll, it, you know, I'm in Hong Kong now because we're finishing the product, and like I said, you have to be at, at the factory as often as possible. So that's why that's why we're here. But soon the product will be done, um, and then my my next priority is definitely just marketing. Going, um, so for example, uh, Interbike, which is the biggest bike trade show in the U.S., is in Las Vegas in late September. So I'm going to be there. Uh, but bro- more broadly, aside from trade, I'm going to be visiting. Um, all our big, all our major cities like Boston, New York, San Francisco, um, uh, Portland, uh, where we have a lot of backers, and I'm hoping to make events where we can have meetups with our backers and just learn from their experience how they like the products and and what they think we could we could do better, and also try and build a community um, of of people within our users. Um, if in a year from now, my, my major test is, you know, we're building a product for commuters. Um, and so if I, I would love to stand on the street in, you know, a busy, a busy bike street in, in New York City, in Boston, in San Francisco, um, and at rush hour and count the number of, of people wearing Lumos helmets. Mm. I would love it to be a certain, a certain number of people. <laughs> I'm not sure what the number should be quite yet, um, but I'd love to see it on the streets, just you know, being a thing. Um, um, so that that that's the that's the traction goal. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's gonna be a beautiful sight for you to see your product out in the wild for the first time on on a good stranger's head. I think it's gonna yeah, be, uh, yeah, yeah. Very it's one cool. of the nice things about this 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 product because it's just so uh, it's so visible it, and mm-hmm. it's so you can, you can just see it <laughs> and, and that's uh. That's nice. Awesome. Thanks so much, Yuen. So again, lumoshelmet.co, L-U-M-O-S-H-E-L-M-E-T.co. Anywhere else you recommend our listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Uh, we are also on Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page. So if you could like our page uh, and get our updates, that would be awesome. We also have a mailing list on our website. So if you're not ready to buy a helmet yet, uh, just leave your email and we will keep you updated on everything that we're doing. Very cool. Thank you so much. 
Thanks so much, Felix. Really appreciate it. This has been great. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.